Welcome back to Shadow TV Game of Thrones Edition, the unofficial podcast companion piece to the juggernaut HBO series Game of Thrones. I'm one of your hosts, Gene Lyons, and alongside me is my co-host, Big D, Dick Ebert. Good evening. This is our deep dive episode where we share our insights, research, and opinions on this week's episode of Game of Thrones. This week's episode is episode five, entitled Eastwatch, where Daenerys offers a choice, Arya grows suspicious, Tyrion answers a good question, and Jaime defies physics. So I got want to ask you, I'll let you start off here. Upon second watch, did your thoughts change at all? Honestly, I was more of a fan the first time around, which is kind of new for this uh, season. Previously in other episodes I watched the first time, had a good appreciation the second time, enjoyed it more. Uh, this time, the the plot holes seemed bigger to me. Yeah, I agree. The first time through, you're, a lot of times you're caught up in the spectacle of the show and the special effects, and the show looks fantastic. And I find myself letting things slide. This time, a lot of the forced uh, meetings and... and uh, you know, the forced relationships they're building, the jetpacking around the uh, the entire continent. It's starting to wear me a bit. And then you have the opening improbable rescue of Jamie. I had a couple discussions today on Twitter with people who were like, ah, get over it. You're, you're watching a show with dragons. You know, who cares? What gets me upset is the need for this improbable rescue was self-inflicted. They wanted Jamie to have that dramatic charge at Daenerys and the dragon. Because you wanted that scene, you were forced to come up with this miraculous escape. You didn't need to do it. And that's what bothered me more the second time. You could have had Jamie in the battle somehow get hit in the back of the head and knocked off the horse into the water. And he just kind of is, is stuck away from the main fighting. We didn't need to force this escape. Right. And, you know, you mentioned the jetpacking. Another thing that a lot of people have, have been pointing out is the the progress of the the whites in that entire army versus everybody else's movement in the show and how it's there's a complete disparity there where Jon Snow can get from Dragonstone to Winterfell uh, round trip you know faster than this army can move just a slight distance and again that serves a purpose we don't know the facts there we don't know how a white army moves we don't know enough about them right maybe they didn't go straight to Eastwatch maybe they took a detour. Maybe they rest for times. They go dormant. We don't know. We don't have enough information on them to know that. So in that sense, you can't really complain that much about it. I mean, it's goofy, sure. But but in this case, we know how a river works. We know how human bodies work, what weight is. And really that, you know, as we mentioned on the Instacast, that that entire Dothraki army is going to be scouring the banks of the river, trying to find Jamie and Bron. They, they would be huge bargaining chips. Yeah, or at least you have Tyrion, who still loves his brother on some level. He's just witnessed him knocked off into the water. Besides having a bargaining chip and capturing the key Lannister uh, military mind, he's going to try to save his brother. And you know that the show realizes they've made a mistake when they don't even try to lampshade it. They don't even try to give you a reason as to why it happened. You just see the nice calm water on the on the rush and up comes Braun. They don't even try to explain how it happened. Uh, so I think they know there was a misstep. Yeah, they started off sort of with a slap in the face and uh, kind of went from there. Now, there were obviously highlights of this episode, a lot of revelations. And some things we're going to talk about on this episode are the the rift between Arya and Sansa, what's really going on there. Uh, the Tarly Q, seeing Randall and Dickon uh, burned alive. If that is the decision of a sound ruler or a slightly mad queen, 
Uh, also going to talk about John's suicide squad going north of the wall, uh, if it makes any sense at all. Uh, I'm going to do a rundown of Game of Thrones' biggest plot holes uh, that I've noticed so far, uh, other than Jamie's River Rescue. And also we're going to talk about uh, that relationship that's developing between Jamie and Bronn, how it's changing, and a couple other quick topics. But let's get right into it, Big D. Uh, so some of the more clever pieces of writing in the show, though, uh, happen at Winterfell with Arya and Sansa, uh, where we see the trap that Arya is uh, setting for Littlefinger and then a counter trap from Littlefinger. And it's kind of a game of cat and mouse. What do you see developing there? I think this is another case of misdirection. Much like the attack on Casterly Rock, we're led to believe one thing is happening when in the end it'll be a reveal. Uh, last week, you had asked the question. You said, why is Arya out sparring in front of everyone when she's supposed to be this secret assassin? Like Her skill should be somewhat not on display. It should be a surprise to whoever you encounter. But she's out there proudly showing how deadly she is. Upon second viewing, I don't think it was a mistake. I think there's a possibility she put that show on for Littlefinger so he would realize what a threat she is. Yeah, people took that prolonged glance that she gave him as her noticing him up there afterward. No, no, she was well aware that he was there standing next to Sansa and she wanted to be seen. She wanted him to feel a little bit of heat, a little bit of pressure from her and also start thinking about her, focusing on her, whether that's to use her as a weapon or to fear her. Either way, she's just trying to get some pieces moving just to you know, shake things up and see what, what settles. We've seen that her skills as a fighter have advanced. I believe also her, her perception is also more heightened and, and refined. I, I believe upon second viewing that the show is misdirecting the viewers that Arya is not being played by Littlefinger but instead she's actually baiting Littlefinger to show his hand. By pushing Sansa a little bit, she wanted to feel out, is she really power hungry or is she trying to do the right thing and possibly Littlefinger's a bad influence on her? She's already warned by Sansa in the scene where uh, Bran reveals that he's gotten the cat's paw dagger. Littlefinger only does things that benefit himself. So at that point, I think she's put on alert. Yeah, I think it's funny that people keep trying to convince Sansa that Littlefinger is not that great, when in fact she's well aware. I mean, she knows him uh, better than, than anybody at Winterfell at this point, essentially. But one thing that we didn't really take into consideration in, in a lot of discussions that are going on um, regarding the scene between Arya and Sansa uh, in their parents' room is uh, one of my friends and, and, a, and a listener, Sam, said, take into consideration what happened between Ramsay and Sansa at Winterfell. She might have certain sensitivities regarding certain areas of the castle, certain areas, you know, her room, for instance. And so it's, it's so although Arya's intentions probably are good, where she's pressuring Sansa to try to suss things out, she's pressuring Sansa to see where her loyalties lie, and more importantly, to flush out uh, Littlefinger, um, this is actually a rather insensitive move by Arya. Arya assumes that she's been through the worst, and doesn't really take into consideration what's happened in Sansa's life where, you know, again, she was, I mean, she's been raped in this castle. She's been abused in this castle. And maybe this seems like a safe place for her. Maybe this is where she feels okay. Yeah. Upon my first viewing, I thought she was, I agreed that she was being insensitive. I, I wrote in my notes, I said, why is Arya being such a dick to Sansa? You know, she questions her motivation when she's up in front of the Northern leaders. And she makes a reference to, well, if you take their heads off, you know, uh, that's the way you you will get loyalty. I think the whole reason that she's doing that is she's been away from Sansa for so long that she doesn't necessarily know, is she that same person who she grew up with? 
Is she looking out for John? Is she going to do the right thing? And she gets that answer, I believe, in the, when she kicks her out of uh, the, the parents' bedroom. And she says, I have work to do. There's almost a look in Arya's eyes of relief that she realizes all of her pushing of Sansa hasn't gotten her to break, hasn't gotten her to lash out, hasn't gotten her to say something that would make her believe she is is no longer that innocent, good-hearted girl who she grew up with. One thing to consider in all this is the the sequence of events. Now, we talked about it on the Instacast. If you missed that or if you didn't really take account of exactly what happened between Littlefinger and Arya in episode five, um, the sequence that we see is Littlefinger receives a, a note that he's asked for. Uh, this is an archived raven uh, from Maester Wolken. He gets his hands on it, asks to make sure it's the only one in existence. He's confirmed, yes, it's the only one. Arya's watching all this from a uh, position of hiding. Littlefinger goes into his chambers and presumably hides the raven. He leaves, locks the door. Arya goes in, picks the lock, which, by the way, I didn't realize that this, there was this, this many locks in, in Winterfell. It seems like a, a risk with guests. But anyway, uh, she goes in there. Goes through his effects and in the matches finds this uh, raven, which basically is the letter that Sansa wrote to Rob Stark in season one under duress. Yeah, so the the letter on its on its own, if you read it, it could be incriminating. It would really be something that Sansa wouldn't be proud of, but it would be understandable. Uh, Arya has seen Joffrey; she knew what Sansa was living under, so. That in itself is not a damning piece of evidence that would make sister turn on sister and drive that wedge. So the topic of the scroll to me isn't as important as what are Littlefinger's motivation. If Arya goes to Sansa now and says, hey, I just saw Littlefinger getting a secret scroll, making sure it's the only one, and he says the lady thanks you. Did you ask him to do that? His motivation would be called into question right now. And if the two sisters got there right in front of him, he can't explain it away. Why would he have requested that scroll if it had any kind of uh, objective to support Sansa? It can only be used as a bargaining chip and, and a wedge between them. And there is a counter argument uh, that people have made that they said, hey, look, maybe he can explain it away as I knew that there was this damaging piece of evidence against you. I made sure to get my hands on it to give it to you so that we could you know, destroy it together or something like that to, to save your good name, Sansa. The problem is, is that immediately after Arya exits the chambers, you can see Littlefinger. He's pleased that she's found the note. He wants her to find it, thinking that it's going to drive a wedge between these two sisters. Exactly. And, and that shows uh, th- that he is not the Snape character who you guys have always thought was just this innocent, misunderstood, socially awkward individual. He's malicious. There's no good in him. And I think he's underestimated Arya. Upon second viewing, Arya hiding in plain sight, she's just enough out that it's obvious to Littlefinger that she's there. She's not doing the normal faceless men, uh, you know, really off in the distance where you don't see her. She's almost dead center in every shot. And we've seen that she can be unseen if she wants to. So this isn't a mistake on her part. Hold on. Also, hold on. I just thought of it. If she truly didn't want to be seen, she could have put on someone else's face and could have just been one of the the workers in the castle. We'd have a lot of dead workers in the castle then. No. What do you? But she could have been anyone. She could have been anyone she came across that people wouldn't know. Once you're inside the castle, you don't know everyone. You could have just been somebody, a farmer delivering uh, the crops that she's requested. 
she's a master of disguise, but yet she's secretly stalking Littlefinger as herself. If you didn't want to get caught, you wouldn't do that. So as much as I'm a fan of Arya, I do agree with many listeners and people on Reddit and Twitter who who basically say that Littlefinger has been shown over the years, over multiple seasons, to be a mastermind. Uh, he's been he's outwitted many of his opponents. This is his chief strength. It seems unfair to me, or I know and that's silly to say in a show like this, but it seems that it's not quite true to me at least, that Arya somehow not only has developed assassin skills, but rather CIA skills in the sense that she can go and, and kind of do this sort of uh, mind games on on Littlefinger. When it, it, so you've got her, she's, she's supremely lethal, and she also uh, can outwit, uh, you know, presumably one of the smartest guys. I really like the setup when Varys, Tyrion, Littlefinger, people who didn't necessarily have a great stature or great physical prowess, that they at least could outwit people. Here you see in Arya, it almost seems like she's flawless. And I wonder if they're going to rectify that by revealing a huge flaw uh, later this season or next. But I disagree. I don't think she's outwitting Littlefinger. She's just pushing the two parties and sitting back and watching. Littlefinger's doing all the work. He's doing everything to incriminate himself. She hasn't done any outwitting. She doesn't know whether Littlefinger's trustworthy. She just gives a push, and she's sitting back and watching what happens. I like it. Uh, moving on to the scene uh, after the battle between the Lannisters and Daenerys' army at Blackwater Rush, uh, we see the the Tarly barbecue, the execution by Drogon, and a lot of people see this as as hints of the Mad Queen. Uh, I believe that it's she's actually a very sound ruler. Where do you sit on that, D? Well, there's a debate even between characters on the show. Uh, Varys and Tyrion are concerned that she's drifting more towards Mad Queen. Daenerys goes completely against Tyrion's advice. Uh, He's afraid she's becoming violent and power-hungry and that it's it's causing a shift in, in who she is that's corrupted her morally. But upon second viewing, I really have to believe she's learned from all of her experiences. She intentionally limited the attack on the battlefield. She didn't go into a city. She stayed out in the open field. She burned mostly wagons. She let a couple thousand troops go, and she offered them a chance to bend the knee. That's a more compassionate response. I think Daenerys has also seen in this Game of Thrones what happens uh, when you allow people to fence sit or when you allow them to go to prison. I mean, she says that, you know, that it, it gives them a third option, it gives them a way out. And she can't, one, she can't afford to imprison people. Where is she going to put them? How is she going to move them along? But secondly, if you're not with her, I mean, clearly you're against her. This is not a time of peace. This is a time of war, and the rules change greatly. Especially with somebody like Randall Tarley, this is a military mastermind. You can't really exile him. You can't just put him in a dungeon somewhere. Um, but more importantly, he directly insults her. You know, he calls her an outsider, questions the validity of claim to the throne. I mean, this guy is asking for it, and he really gives her no choice. Yeah, yeah, he definitely takes that last chance to uh, to call her a foreign invader, and she's not, you know, from here. She didn't grow up. He also takes a shot at Tyrion for killing his father. But I love how Danny starts off. She's not just trying to win over the troops by threatening to burn them. She opens up with a, a heart and minds campaign. She says, "I know Cersei's told you I'm a monster. That I, I'm I'm here to kill you, rape your wives, you, you know, feed your children to my dragons. But that's Cersei." Cersei only cares about people like her. The, you know, the wheel has been driving over the poor for forever, and I'm here to change it. She makes a compelling argument to them to bend a knee without being forced. 
And I was surprised only a couple took it, but she has no option. She's fighting an enemy in Cersei that will do anything, will fight dirty. And Daenerys has been handcuffing herself with morality. And she now realizes that she's got to walk that line. And yes, some will have to die. And you can't do it always in a very peaceful manner that doesn't end up hurting someone. I think you've mentioned before that one thing to clarify here, this isn't a war between established nations. This isn't a war between stable kingdoms. These are factions. These are houses that are fighting each other. Many of these people are mercenaries. Uh, many of these people are just uh, you know, fighting for the person who pays them. And so in that sense, you also have to consider the fact that you have these Tarleys who just came back from attacking Tyrells and what that must do to them. I mean, they had to kill people that they knew. Uh, that they that they had fought beside uh, these lines are getting blurred. I mean, in several scenes now, you see you know Davos and, and Tyrion working together when they were on opposite sides of Blackwater. Uh, the lines are getting blurred greatly here, and I think that it's surprising to me, like you said, that more people didn't bend the knee in the sense that you're a soldier, you just witnessed the most massive military power in Westeros, and they're offering you a chance to join, and not you don't even have to fight necessarily, you can actually just recognize that this is the queen or this is the power that you support. Um, I admire, I guess, their and, and respect uh, their dedication for Randall Tarley and Dickon Tarley. It makes perfect sense. They they are uh, you know they are men of honor, um, except for when they turn on their fealty. So in that last moment, Randall takes the the option of of his word and his oath over surviving for his house. When his son Dickon comes out and stands by him, did you feel that he was? happy his son had done that or was he disappointed that he didn't sacrifice to stay and keep the family going yeah i think that randall saw that as a compromise between family name and a family future where he could die but his son wouldn't have to and that his son could could carry on because his son did not make a pledge right again we talk about generations not paying for the sins of their fathers sort of thing i think that he was very disappointed and upset that dickon joined him he tried to say that he's just you know, foolish boy that, you know, to pay no attention to him, uh, even though he's clearly got a nice suit of armor <laughs> and looks like nobility, uh, you know, uh, th- this show doesn't do a great job of hiding nobles. Oh, no. And he's a good looking dude. He's ripped. He does not look like a commoner. He's not one of the, the skinny Lannister soldiers dragging around the shield. Somebody did point out though, that he looked like a, a punter uh, in like linebacker shoulder pads. <laughs> so people have said that she, she seems power drunk. Uh, that she seems, you know, touches the Mad King. I felt in these all these scenes, she's very lucid. She's measured. She speaks eloquently. She is showing a good balance between mercy and ferocity. And I think that in this world, honestly, a lot of people agree with Tyrion, and I don't understand it in the sense that I think he just doesn't have the stomach for it. I've always thought that Tyrion would be a good ruler. I think Tyrion would get rolled by the first army that came through. Yeah, I totally agree. He does a good job at managing the sewage system at Castle Rock, and he was a decent hand to the king. But he does not have the stomach for what it takes to be a, a leader uh, in this type of world. I do have two corrections to make uh, before we move on to the next topic. One, on the Instacast, I said that uh, that Sam was had possession of Bright Roar. Uh, that is actually the Lannister family sword, which was lost in an expedition to Valeria. He has possession of Heartsbane, which is the Tarly family sword. In addition, uh, he because he was disowned by his father, uh, he would not have control of House Tarly. That would actually fall to his mother, since she is the only surviving uh, member of uh, surviving legitimate member of House Tarly. 
Moving to Eastwatch, uh, the namesake of this episode, we see John forming his uh, suicide squad. Some people have called them the Avengers, the Magnificent Seven, uh, whatever you want to call them. These guys are going north. Uh, they have a quick scene in the jail where they all bond together after, again, hyperspeed conversation, which is becoming a trademark of the season. Uh, it bothered a lot of people. Yeah, it bothered me. And you have to realize here, the jetpacking I'm okay with. You need to do it for an economy of, of scene and for time. But you can't just start forcing characters together when it doesn't make sense for their narrative and for their character arc. They're, you're now expecting people to do things that aren't necessarily natural, that don't feel right. You're forcing people into a scene because you need to do it from a plot perspective. And that's where I have a big issue. First off, it's a suicide mission. The chances of it working are next to none. And you're also asking them to do it for a reason that isn't clear to all of them. They all have separate motivations. And then on top of that, they all have a, a past history with each other. And it's done from a plot perspective because it's really cool. You say, oh man, let's get Jorah together with Gendry the Hound, Beric, who else? Oh, let's get Thoris of Mir, and then we'll get uh, a Torment. Yeah, this will be great. This will look good on screen, but it doesn't make sense from a plot perspective. Some people point out it's not just the seven of them. They actually have some other people going up behind them, which I didn't catch on the on the first viewing, but you're absolutely right. It's not just the seven. But like you said, it is, it's the Expendables. It's Suicide Squad. I think that the, the answer behind this and all the jetpacking Westeros might be that in season seven, they know they're winding the show down and they might be afraid to introduce new characters into the show in sort of the, it's not just winter's coming to Westeros, winter's coming to Game of Thrones. Uh, you know, as it's winding down, normally, if this were early in, in any series, you would take these opportunities to expand the world, you know, to show us new characters and, and how exciting it was. Remember those those discoveries as we went through when we first saw Brienne of Tarth, when we first, you know, were introduced to Beric, when we were first introduced to Jorah. You know, these were exciting moments uh, and, and characters that we grew to love and, and, and care about. You don't really see that happening that much anymore. There's no new characters coming. It's kind of winding down and it's like a like a battle royale. Yeah, so I, I went through one by one to highlight some of the history that the characters have together and then judge is it likely or unlikely that their character would be willing to get over what's happened in the past and to to still be part of this mission. So first you have Thoris of Mir. His relationship in the group is to Jorah. He fought with him in the Siege of Pike, and Thoros had the, the flaming sword at that point, so he led the breach through the walls, uh, and it was a success with Jorah coming right behind him, and, and Robert actually knighted Jorah for his valor in the battle, which to this day it is Jorah's proudest moment in life, and he has a conversation with, it about Barris, with Barristan in Season 3, Episode 5. So the chance is he doesn't have a grudge against anybody. He's on board because... Uh, you know, he's a true devout follower of the Lord of Light, and he doesn't question what the mission is, but just the Lord of Light has told him to, to be there. So he's likely. So next we have Beric. You got to remember, Beric had kidnapped Gendry and was selling him to Melisandre for gold. And Melisandre was going to kill him. She was going to sacrifice him. So it is likely that he would be there as a devout follower of the Lord of Light. But I don't think that Gendry... Even though he wants to follow John and Davos, it's not likely to me that he would be able to get over that past with Beric and forgive that. Yeah, there's not enough motivation there for Gendry. There's, he doesn't have a lot of skin in the game. Uh, yeah, sure, he hates the Lannisters, 
and he wants to join Davos and John. But in this case, if if I had just left Flea Bottom and you take me to uh, to Dragonstone and then go, hey, we're going up north and we're going to go fight White Walkers, and then I show up and again a guy who kidnapped me uh, is is there and we're supposed to fight alongside each other. I go, you know, I don't care that much about this. No, you look. Arya has that list, and people have done a lot less to get on her list of people who would die. I don't think it's realistic to expect that Gendry would get over that. And then you have Tormund realizes that Jorah's father used to hunt his people like animals. It took him how long to trust John and to get over the fact of him being a, a member of the Night's Watch? All of a sudden, we expect him now that he's just going to put that aside and forgive Jorah? Yeah, and again, if this had stretched out over a season, if uh, these guys had had interactions together, maybe they were all you know, captured in some way and had to work together, or maybe that they saw something in each other, as we've seen other characters develop. I mean, Tyrion, they didn't just go overnight and go, oh, okay, he's a good guy now. Jamie, you know, there's no way you could have taken Jamie from what he was in season one to what he is now in one episode and been like, okay, or if you would have said, yeah, you know what, uh, Tyrion and Daenerys are going to be working together at some point, uh, or, or Tyrion and Ser Davos, for that matter. It had to develop over time, or they have to have some sort of huge motivation. Here, it just seems like we're all breathing, so let's go. And as you've pointed out, the only two of them who have actually even encountered White Walkers, as far as I know, is John and Tormund. Uh, these other guys don't even have any reason to to even believe they exist or uh, or want to go up against them. No, normally for a suicide mission, people have to have an invested interest. There has to be a reason for them to be there, and it, it's not there. You can't compress it and make it feel right. You talked about the Jamie and the Brienne Roadshow. To make that relationship and respect believable, it has to take time. You can't just do it over a 30-second conversation when the threat is unseen. It's un, it, it's not believed yet. So it's not realistic. The Hound, there's no reason that he would be on the here on the other side of the wall simply because he saw a vision of the fire. He's a proud non-believer of any religion. And now he has seen an army of the dead, and all of a sudden he's just, yep, I'm supposed to be here, let's go. He's always been one who's had self-interest and self-preservation in mind. I don't know that he would be there in this, just this whole thing. Yes, it's cool to see them all. They look badass. They look like the Westeros Avengers. Uh, It's going to be great to see a lot of action, but I don't think it would have happened a few seasons ago. And yes, we have a large group of red shirts that I didn't notice on the first viewing. So we have, you know, none of them are going to last. So at least we have, say, 15, 20 guys who can become, uh, you know, some fresh meat for the White Walkers. I just wish it wasn't done this way. It'll be fun to watch. Hopefully I'll get over it. But it just seems, again, like a self-inflicted wound. Yeah, it really cheapens the show. And I never thought I'd see the day where people were comparing Game of Thrones to The Walking Dead. But that's starting to happen where people are saying, okay, so you've got characters that can't really die. And and again, we saw the Tarleys, you know, roasted. But at the same time, are they as significant? I feel like we're getting, you know, these sort of cheap kills so that we don't have to expend anybody huge. Um, probably one of these guys or a few of them are going to die north of the wall. But you can't expect all of them to. And I think one of the arguments too is that well. All these guys have to be north of the wall because a thing is going to happen. You'll see later, Gene, when we get there, and there's a reason why they all have to be there. And I'm like, I get that. I get that. But that's not that's that doesn't legitimize writing something just because you need somebody to be somewhere at a specific time. Yeah, that's the biggest problem. People are doing things now because the plot requires it, not because it makes sense within the plot. 
And it, it's funny online to see people slowly turning. It's a tenuous time. We're getting close to the end and people are getting a little antsy. You've spent seven seasons developing characters and to now betray them at the last minute and expect us to do something that they we know they normally wouldn't have done. It would be like if we watched Ned Stark, if he'd survived for seven seasons. And then all of a sudden here in the last minute, he just come, throws out the window everything that we've known about him, about being a man of honor and just start stealing, robbing, looting, raping. It's a betrayal of the character and it, it didn't need to be done. So before people on YouTube write in and say, if you don't like it, don't watch the show. I want to clarify that this is going to make for good TV. Like it's going to be fun oh, yeah. to watch. Um, and, you know, I watched the Avengers uh, movies and I enjoyed the Avengers movies, a big fan of Joss Whedon. And I like those ensemble superhero movies. But that's when you've got two, two and a half hours. You got to cram all this in. I'm willing to accept that one interaction is going to make somebody loyal to another person for life. Uh, that that you would actually keep the Hulk around, even though he's a massive liability, like all that stuff. I, I can accept that, and we're all going to work together as a team, and, and that makes sense. But this isn't that movie. This is a this is a show that's been finely crafted over seven seasons, and so it's just it's a sour note in an otherwise beautiful symphony. And I'm I'm really excited for this this coming battle. Uh, things are going to get really hairy north of the wall. And Roger made some arguments too that that kind of offer an opposing viewpoint. Um, and that's just how well woven together these characters are in the sense that they do have history with each other, kind of taking what you said and flipping it on its head in the sense that the Hound, Gendry, Thoros, and Beric all spent time with Arya, which is unknown to Jon. And Jon is in possession of Longclaws. He goes north of the Wall, which was formerly Jorah's sword. So there's a lot of cool stuff that could come out in this, you know, and there's also great dialogue that come out between these people. They could discover things about each other. Um, this could still redeem itself. It's just an issue of, you know, the fact that it evokes that sort of response in in memes and on Twitter uh, of saying it's the Avengers, of saying it's the Magnificent Seven. That sounds like the audience is sniffing something odd. Totally agree. And that brings me to some plot holes. <laughs> so, so again, uh, YouTube listeners, we do love yeah. the show. So we haven't turned on it, but there are some issues. So we started off talking about Jamie's River Rescue, and that seems highly unlikely, but that's not the weirdest thing that's happened on this show, or if it is the weirdest thing, there are some that are pretty damn close. Um, and the first one I want to talk about is Arya getting stabbed in the gut. Now, the waif puts a dagger into her gut, twists it around. Uh, this is Westeros. We've seen that a wound like that is a death sentence. Uh, this, it was delivered by an assassin, and yet somehow she's miraculously cured of this. I understand that she beat the waif in combat, but how the hell did she serve a gut stab? Uh, I don't know. And, and when you wrote up this list and said, hey, I, I think I want to address some of the, the plot points that either we've you know, fallen off the table or that we've forgotten about. Some of these shocked me. Yes, you, you have to at least, again, show of dragons. But why did it happen? You didn't need to gut her. You could have made her get a, a wound in the side. You're forcing us to ask these questions. We're not asking it because we want to. Yeah, and again, it's it's. I know why it was done. It's dramatic, right? Oh my god, she got stabbed. How is she going to survive? She does some crazy ass parkour after getting gut stabbed too, and somehow she she's okay. I could have seen if Arya killed the waif and died herself. I could have seen if even if they had some sort of uh, an explanation of a magical, you know, as much as I would hate no. that, at least it'd be something. But again, there's an easier thing to do. Don't have her gutted. If you open up someone's intestines, it's a death sentence. Why don't you stab her in the arm and she almost bleeds out? 
you can ex- you it's believable that you could put a tourniquet on and stop bleeding but if someone guts you you're done yeah another point on aria is she was serving tywin lannister uh and he knew all these facts about her that she was a girl uh that she was noble born that she was from the north and she was in hiding how the fuck did this guy who was a, a genius not figure out that she's Arya Stark. Seems a little odd to me. Th- th- it was one of the weirdest points in the show when I said, you know, th- it felt like Clark Kent with glasses. You know, how do you not notice this person? Yeah, it's funny you bring that up because I watched that episode last night, uh, that exact scene without reading this note first. And I wasn't as much struck by that as how bad that version of the mountain was. Do you remember that actor? It was, I think, the second iteration of the mountain. And he was absolutely awful. But again, how many how many little girls are out there in the north whose parents have been killed, who are in hiding? Uh, I can believe it. It, w- it was less probable that that was actually Arya. Uh, but she had a chance right there. She could have killed him. She, if she was willing to jump on the sword, she could have taken him out. And that would have changed uh, the history of everything. Yeah, speaking of shit, that wouldn't have made sense. That wouldn't have made sense. Just that wasn't in her character then. If your family, you just watched your father die. I don't care. Any child or anyone who, who wants vengeance, that's well within her character. It's not within her character. She had a list of people she wanted to kill. She had one of them right in front of her and she had a knife in her hand. Take the shot. I like that she didn't. I liked. I like that it developed. We wouldn't have an Arya now. She'd be dead. Yeah, maybe she would have killed Tywin. All right, now if you want to get some really weird shit, the Sand Snakes. Okay, so the women of Dorne seize control. They execute Dorne Martell. They execute his heir, Prince Tristan. Except Tristan was on a boat moored at King's Landing. So somehow the Sand Snakes had to make their way to the capital, board Jamie's ship, murder the prince, and then escape back to Dorne completely undetected. Uh, the Sand Snakes move around, I think, more than anybody I know uh, as far, you know, maybe maybe Littlefinger or Jon Snow are, are, are comparable but their ability to move kind of baffles me. There's also Littlefinger moving, I think the, the math on it was 3,500 miles in a few episodes. Tyrion's ship from Winterfell to Marine would equal a 6,000-mile trip. And John getting from Dragonstone to Eastwatch uh, in, in one episode. Euron getting from Blackwater to Castle Rock to mount an attack on Daenerys' fleet that quickly. There's a lot of fast movement here, and I can accept it once or twice, but it's starting to become a really regular thing. The Sand Snakes, to me, were the, the first uh, major set of characters that the, the show mishandled. They never truly developed them. They never explained their motivation. You know, we had learned from you know, our, our experience with Doran Warriors and Prince Oberon, the Red Viper, was how deadly and proficient they were and how legendary his daughters were. They never lived up to the hype they never completely vetted them and had them build out as characters. They almost had them on screen for for levity. The, the jail scenes with Braun about the bad pussy, it undermined the character. Instead of fearless warriors and, and deadly assassins, they became a prop for comedy. I like that scene. <laughs> oh, it was. It, as a guy, you got to like it, but giving them credibility as warriors, eh, you didn't need to do it. A couple other quick ones to run through. Uh, Raj points out that uh, that Cersei finds an army of undead unbelievable, but she has an undead mountain in her Queen's Guard, which seems a little odd. That's a good uh, point. Edmund Tully, uh, the Lannisters took him captive. Uh, they told me that they'd have a comfortable confinement. He's being held. Now, he's either got to be at King's Landing or 
presumably he'd be held at Castle Rock. He just disappeared. And for that matter, where the fuck did Theon go? He's at Dragonstone and then he's just gone? Yeah, his ship lands and then he just go- he just vanished. Where where'd he go? It was his ship docked somewhere? Did he just he's got nowhere else to go. He's gotta be around. We didn't forget about him. And speaking of ships, we gotta go back to Euron and the thousand ships. So he had like, I don't know, twenty guys on the Iron Islands, <laughs> build him a fleet of a thousand ships. It's done over the, I guess, the, the gap between seasons, uh, but which we know is not was not that long. And these aren't just like dinky little boats. I mean, these are huge hulking ships uh, that can crush another navy. They crushed the, the Greyjoy and Dornish combined forces. Uh, did some research, and for a ship of comparable technology to be built by hand, uh, it would take a year to build one ship, uh, 20 men. It would take them a year to build one ship. So... You got to wonder exactly what kind of a a production facility he's got going there. And we're not nitpicking. This is self-inflicted. They didn't need to say a thousand ships. We haven't seen a thousand ships on screen. If he had just said, build me 200 ships, that's still a believable number. It's an impressive armada. But when you hit a thousand is where people start to go, hmm, let's, let's do the math. The show didn't need to do it. And we wouldn't be questioning it. So it's not just us nitpicking. Right. And finally, um, I think one of the really interesting ones, and you know, getting back to the, the, the nudity part of the show, we see that uh, Melisandre, when she takes off the, the, the locket, when she takes off the necklace, uh, it changes her into her true form, which is much older, far less attractive. And, and, and you see that and you go, oh, okay, that's cool. But we don't re- we didn't remember that before that we'd seen her take it off before in season four. And nothing happened. She just looked like herself. She's in the bath. It's not on her. Uh, There's an an episode, uh, Mockingbird is the episode in season four. We can go back and check that out. And before you say, well, maybe she can control it, like that she was kind of letting her hair down. (laughs) Um, They they spoke to the actress in an interview, uh, Carice Van Houten, and she said, no, it was an oops moment. We just, we fucked up. So, um, So again, it's just those little inconsistencies. And again, not to nitpick, but it's just kind of when you look at the, the the sum of it, we really shouldn't be that shocked with Jamie and Braun, but that shows you just how egregious this was. I totally agree. Talking about Jamie and Braun and their relationship status, I want to ask if we think that at this point that the relationship has maybe taken a turn from you know a, a, a mutual respect. And I understand that Braun is a sellsword and he's working for gold and he's keeping uh, close to Jamie because eventually he wants that castle he's been promised. But do you feel there's been a shift in the last two episodes about the, the relationship between those two men? Yeah, it felt like uh, in earlier seasons, Braun was kind of serving as Jamie's caddy, or like at, at best his squire and or bodyguard. And now it feels like, if you were to ask me based on these two characters, based on their dialogue and their interaction, you know, which one uh, is related to the queen and which one is serving him, it, it'd be hard to say. I mean, for God's sake, in this episode, he calls Jamie a cunt. I think he's blurring the line now. Yes, he did save Jamie, but he's clearly put a limit on their relationship that he draws the line at dragons. When dragons are around, that's the that's the limit of it. Jamie, on, on the other hand, believes that they're tied together, that when the dragons attack the city you know, and start burning, Braun's not going to be there, and Jamie's a bit surprised to hear that. Later in the episode, when Braun sets up that secret meeting with Jamie and Tyrion, 
Do we believe that that Cersei's knowledge of that meeting did that come from Braun? Did Braun somehow betray Jamie to Cersei? I don't think so. Uh, right before Jamie comes in, you actually see Cersei talking to Kyburn. And I think that, you know, he and Jamie, again, the show doesn't do anything unintentionally. Jamie asks, you know, what, what's he doing here? And she's like, he's the hand of the queen. What are you doing here? You know, and, and so I think that Kyburn ha- is, is keeping her informed. She wants to know everything that's going on. Um, and therefore, I, I don't think that, that Braun sold him out. And see, I still took that Kyburn meeting as something to do with her potential pregnancy. It just didn't feel, there's something else going on here. And that if Braun is to stay true to his character, he will work for whoever's the, whoever pays the best. And maybe his allegiance has, has changed from Jamie and that he knows there's a limited time for him to cash out. Uh, you have Daenerys with a, an, a large army and dragons. It puts your potential end goal in jeopardy. So maybe Cersei's fishing expedition asking Jamie about, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to punish him? He betrayed you. Wasn't so much as driving a wedge between them as it is trying to force them apart for good. So we talked about, you know, you talked about Jamie and Braun's relationship, and I think they've taken a turn in the last few episodes. Braun has always seemed to be a loyal guy, dead Jamie's back, and granted, in the end, he's working for himself that he wants that castle he's been promised. But Cersei somehow knows about this secret meeting with Jamie and Tyrion. Is it likely that Braun betrayed Jamie? I don't think so. There's a there's there are a lot of other players at work, and when Jamie enters the room, he asks why Kyburn is there. Uh, Cersei replies that Kyburn is there because he's the hand of the queen, and then asks why Jamie is there. And the show doesn't do anything unintentionally, so I think that Kyburn might be informing her as to what's going on uh, around King's Landing. Okay, so then when she's she's just still fishing a bit because she wants to know what Jamie's plans are to to do to Braun because Jamie betrayed you know because he betrayed Jamie. So then maybe she's just trying to drive a wedge there, but the wedge may be forming on its own. Even though in the episode that Braun saves Jamie's life, Jamie's still under the impression that Braun will be there by his side at the end. And he won't. Braun said, I draw the line, you know, at dragons. That's where we part ways. He's made it clear that he's not an ally, as he's an employee. He's owed money in a castle. And as soon as the dragons come, he's out. And that's an important conversation to have because people saw at the end of episode four, you know, Braun saves Jamie's life. He tackles him off that horse and saves him from, you know, imminent doom. And a lot of people saw that as see Braun didn't run from battle. See, Braun is sticking up for Jamie that this is a, a, a bond that is more than gold. He very quickly clarifies that's not the case. Yeah, I think Braun's pragmatic. And he realizes the likelihood of him coming out of this alive isn't very high. And he's going to do what it takes. So I don't believe that he betrayed Jamie, but it is a possibility that we have to, you know, really take into account. Uh, you mentioned Jamie and Kyburn's conversation, and potentially that was where information went. I took it as he's there meeting with Cersei about a potential pregnancy. And there's been a lot of debate online. Is she pregnant? Is she not pregnant? Do you believe she is pregnant or is she using it as leverage against Jamie? I think she's absolutely pregnant. You know, we spent a lot of time on the Instacast talking about the, you know, the potential father of that or what that revelation could mean. Um, 
I understand the argument that she could be faking it, that she's playing head games with Jamie, that she's trying to draw his loyalty or or play on his um, affection toward toward children. Um, but at the same time, that sounded awful. But at the same time, uh, you know, it seems like a real gamble for Cersei, who is pretty smart. She has other ways of manipulating people. She doesn't need to necessarily use that, this route. And also, you can only fake a pregnancy for so long. And people question if she, another possibility is that she is pregnant, but it's not Jamie's. Uh, you even brought that up in the Instacast, that she may have acknowledged that there's a problem in the children of her and Jamie, that there's a flaw in the uh, the genetic makeup, I think is the way you phrased it, and it could be somebody else's. But a lot of people have brought up the prophecy. Uh, so if you think back to the first flashback that the show ever gave us was young Cersei going out and meeting Maggie the Frog, uh, the witch that's in the woods. And she says, tell me your future. And Maggie gives her a prophecy that she will become queen. Uh, She will then be surpassed by another more beautiful. And she will have three children that will be shrouded in gold, foretelling that she will bury three of her children. If that prophecy is true, I only see possible four total options. One, she is not pregnant and is lying. Another option, she is pregnant and will die before giving birth. Or she is pregnant and the child doesn't make it to birth. Those are the only three potential ways that the prophecy could be true. Or fourth option, the prophecy was bullshit and she can be pregnant again. One of our listeners, uh, Anthony, he's on Twitter at PIC2022, so pick 2022, said, you know, I'm calling it now. Cersei is pregnant. Jamie is the father. Cersei dies during birth. Jamie is truly the Queen Slayer. People have a lust to see Jamie kill uh, Cersei in any way possible. And this seems to be a new avenue for it is that it's not even by sword uh, or by strangulation, but rather, um, he, you know, or poison. It's just going to be the childbirth alone will kill her and, and he will have to take responsibility for that. God, that would be awful because you think that Tyrion killed his mother. You know, whether it was because he was a dwarf in the size of his head that uh, his birth caused that. And you know that Cersei has such a disdain for Tyrion and, the, and him being a, a half-man, a dwarf. Imagine if they have a dwarf child and it kills her during childbirth. That would be ironic. Circles within circles. And that motif of things coming full circle is really present in this episode uh, and I want to talk a little bit, we touched on it lightly on the Instacast, but just take a minute to talk about Robert and Gendry and Ned and John. And a lot of people were really impressed with Gendry's wielding of the Warhammer. We like the chemistry uh, between Gendry and John, but there's actually a lot more there. There's a depth there that I really want to commend the show for. And again, uh, if, you, if you think we're all complaints, here's some high praise. So uh, for those who didn't know, Gendry wields a Warhammer, as did his father, Robert Baratheon. Uh, and he actually, it is, it is noted that he drove that hammer, you know, through the chest plate, uh, of the King to, to become King. Uh, John wields a longsword, as did his father. So you're seeing the parallels there. Uh, Gendry has a claim to the Iron Throne, sorta in the sense that he is a bastard, but is the son of Robert Baratheon and therefore feels that there is an avenue there. John also labeled a bastard. Uh, is now king in the north. And so you have that, you know, the warden of the north, king of the north. Uh, the, so the two thrones basically have their butts uh, assigned to them. Um, both are very forward. They're very fearless. Both have suffered greatly. Um, 
what's really interesting is that both Robert and Gendry both were always up for a good fight. They were sporting men. They 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 found a a, a joy in that. Whereas John and Ned uh, tend to fight with duty and a heavy heart. Uh, Gendry makes John smile. Robert was always uh, that guy that was you know trying to to play on gloomy Ned. You, you kind of see again that they, that they are just echoes of of their um, if not their biological fathers, their uh, their fathers overall. And I think based on these parallels, it's likely that Gendry and John are, are going to become uh, brothers of choice, and that's that's what Robert called Ned uh, when he favored him over Stannis. So basically, Robert had his two brothers, but. Uh, saw Ned as his, as his true brother um, by choice. Yeah, and you can see this is almost like uh, we're seeing the prequel, the young Ned and Robert, you know, before Robert's Rebellion. And it's they're, they're compelling characters. They're opposite sides of the coin, and they play well off each other. It's great to watch on screen. Now, there's a dark side of this relationship, and that is if, if we follow the lineage going back, so Jon Snow is uh, Lyanna's son, and Gendry is the son of the man who loved Lyanna and believed her kidnapped, right? So so Robert Baratheon believed that Lyanna was kidnapped. They were betrothed, and that really led uh, to war. So after everything had settled, Robert ended up marrying Cersei, but she wasn't his first choice. He was, he was betrothed to Lyanna. He married Cersei because it created an alliance with Tywin Lannister, who handed him King's Landing. Uh, so this is a strange and twisted bond. There is there is blood between these two families. In, in, you know, previous generations actually slaughtering each other. You know, again, as that echo of Baratheon and Stark is a harmonious uh, note. You have now you have to face the fact that John is in fact a Targaryen, in which case this is a very dissonant note. So it, it makes for a very interesting dynamic going forward, and I can't wait to see what they do with it. Yeah, I think there's going forward, there would be a lot of questions as to once John's true heritage comes out, how people react. How will Daenerys react to learning that John has a better claim to the throne? Is she accepting of it? But in this time of the dead rising and marching on the living, if there's ever a time to put stuff aside, I think we're we're getting very close to that. You can't be consumed with petty issues of the past and family names when the entire fate of of Westeros and the realm is at stake. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see with Daenerys, especially, you know, who speaks so much of birthright and who believes in her fate and her destiny to to be queen, to sit on the throne and to rule with her dragons, because that is the Targaryen um, legacy. It'll be interesting to see what, what would happen if she realizes that, you know, actually, I'm not the queen, I'm the aunt of the rightful king. It's not quite as nice a title. No, you hope that she'd be okay with it. She's always believed in herself, and I think she could find some way to, to, to serve. But she, it, I'll tell you, what would break her heart is if her children, you know, if they liked their, their nephew a little bit more, that might break her heart. If she calls her dragons, yeah, hey, guys, come on, let's go play. No, 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 we're going to hang out here with John. That might push her over the edge. Yeah, my dog has at times uh, been ha- letting other people pet her, and then uh, when I call her over, she doesn't come over, and that, that is gut-wrenching it's so upsetting but god if we can close this out with one last thing how unbelievable did those dragons look yeah this was i think for me the the, the pinnacle of the special effects on this show is seeing the interaction between drogon and john it looked it looked phenomenal i couldn't tell was that head was that practical or was that cgi 
Yeah, I don't know. I think it, I think it was CGI, but I haven't seen anything like that. I mean, it is a daring move for a show to put them that close to each other, especially when you see how far they've come. Uh, if you look at the dragons early, early on in the series, uh, they they kind of looked a little goofy, and they've really made and not just because they were tiny, but actually the the animation of them, the the visual detail uh, was nowhere near what they've got going on right now. And I was disappointed. HBO does the. I, th- I think they call it like the anatomy of a scene or the construction of a scene where they will go over the production of, you know, they did the, 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 the dragon battle last week where they broke out the anatomy of it. I want to see how they put the scene together. If that head turns out to be CGI, I'll be blown away. It looked so real. It was in the physical world. They even go down to the fact of when Drogon takes off, they have a large gust of wind blow up John's cape stunning stunning work and then you you throw on top of that you have the the burning and drogon sitting on the rock in the opening scene amazing work it's it's crazy to think how far we've come when you compare it to even just a few years ago yeah could you imagine if they try to make this show in like the 90s how god awful it would look god even if you just look back a few years what they've been able to do you couldn't have done it and the show would not have been what it is today if you didn't have the the attention to detail and HBO, we have to commend them. They have gone all out. The money they pour into the show is visible on screen. And as a, a fan of the show, I truly appreciate it. All right. If your heads aren't about to explode, then you weren't listening. Cause I feel like I am absolutely drained after that marathon uh, run through <laughs> a shit ton of information. It was a, it was a very uh, action packed and detailed episode. So I hope we can look for more of the same. We're both very sad to see that we've only got two episodes left this season. Yeah, I don't know what we're going to do with ourselves. We'll have to find hobbies. Oh, God. (laughs) So that concludes this week's episode of Shout on TV, Game of Thrones edition. Be sure to follow us on social media and share with a friend. We're on Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram, at Shout on TV. Facebook, search for Shat on TV Podcast. The website, as always, is shatontv.com. If you've got thoughts on the show, anything we got wrong... Uh, please write in host at shadowntv.com. If there's something that you'd like to add as far as a theory, um, or just tell us what you think of the show so far, you can write us at that email address, host at shadowntv.com. We will have a Thursday small council episode where we read the best emails coming from the listeners. Uh, And if you do have a correction, be sure to mark it. If you're on social media as hashtag, um, actually, or leave, um, actually in the subject line of the email. So we can just get those filtered through as quickly as possible. I've already gotten a couple, uh, so thanks, everyone, for paying such close attention. Where everywhere fine podcasts can be found, including iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and YouTube, be sure to subscribe. And if you stop by iTunes, please leave a review. That helps the podcast grow. On behalf of my co-host, Big D, Dick Ebert, I'm Gene Lyons. Be sure to join us on Thursday for our Game of Thrones Small Council. And as always, be sure to knock twice before joining us on the throne. <laughs>